The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. I did not think at that point that there was a murder case. Well, I went and sat in his office, and that's basically when he told me they're probably going to charge me with murder. This trial ended up being essentially a battle of experts. I would have advised them to strongly challenge how the sleepiness would not be sufficient. This bathtub had this eerie quality to it. It was the star witness of the whole trial. There's no evidence here in Valley could have just sunk under the water and been unable to protect herself. I just thought it just completely showed the absurdity of what they were trying to do. They had a person on trial for murder, and they had no earthly idea of what actually happened in that bathroom. This is Episode 6, The Defense. Last time on Direct Appeal, we covered the prosecution's opening for the Ryan Widmer trial for the murder of his wife, Sarah Widmer. This time, we're going to cover the defense's case. It's their turn. There was a sense that defense had the upper hand after the cross-examination of Dr. Lee. Remember, Amy, we covered Dr. Lee last time. And there wasn't a good feeling at the end of his. It was just a little sketchy kind of. Well, he also, for the first time, brought up the theory that it's possible that this drowning happened in a bathtub, a sink or a toilet. So that kind of threw everyone for a loop. Everyone. And I think there was this again, we heard from a couple of people who said, uh, you know, kind of not so great at the end of that one. But the defense came out strong. They began with their first witness, who was Dr. Werner Spitz. And remember, we discussed him last time in his impressive resume, some of the cases that he's handled. And as we did last episode with Dr. Lee's testimony, we're going to turn to our pathologist, Marianne Hamill, to summarize and contrast the findings of the defense's witness, Dr. Werner Spitz. So let's hear from Dr. Hamill. Three days after the first autopsy, a second autopsy is performed by a very prominent pathologist named Werner Spitz. Your listeners may know that name because he is the author of a standard work of the field called Medical Legal Investigation of Death, which you'll find in the bookshelf of just about every forensic pathologist in the country. My copy is well-worn. Dr. Spitz finds essentially roughly the same things that Dr. Updegrove found. He doesn't list petechial hemorrhages in her eyes, but Dr. Updegrove does, and the sizes of the contusions that he finds are slightly different, but the findings are very similar. So essentially, the issue in this case is one of interpretation. Two different pathologists looked at the same case, found basically the same thing, and what they're trying to do is separate out the artifacts of resuscitation from actual injuries. Now, please keep in mind that Sarah was given CPR for at least 45 minutes at roughly 100 compressions per minute. Also keep in mind that there were five attempts at intubating her, none of which were successful. They also tried to put in lines in what looks like both of her arms, and they finally got a line in her left neck. It's not clear from the trial transcript, which I did read, whether that was a single attempt, as one of the EMTs says, 
or if it was multiple attempts to put a needle in her left neck, as one of the forensic pathologists for the prosecution alleges. All of that creates a lot of artifact, which is difficult to separate out from what's actually going on. Some people, it's hard to get a line in. They're working in a very small space. I see this not uncommonly, and I see esophageal intubations in maybe 5% of the people who come in with an with a endotracheal tube in. So it's not uncommon. This trial ended up being essentially a battle of experts. Each side put up two forensic pathologists and a couple of emergency room physicians. The prosecution's uh, experts said, nope, this all has to be injury. Very little of it is due to resuscitation efforts. Whereas the defense said, nope, this could totally be resuscitation artifact. Can't tell. So Dr. Hamill is aptly pointing out that this just comes down to a battle of the experts. On the cross of Dr. Spitz, though, the prosecution asked about his pay. And as it turns out, Spitz was being paid something like $400 an hour. So about $5,000 for two days of testimony. But how much were the prosecution's experts getting paid? The prosecution's experts got paid as well, but it wasn't disclosed. I will tell you also that that is high. But you know, Werner Spitz, Michael Bodden, a couple of these are the top Mm -hmm. ones in the country. So they can pretty much demand whatever they want to demand. And I also think that these bigger names, such as Werner Spitz, have enough integrity that they're not doing it for the money. He wouldn't just say what that side wants him to say. No, I don't think he's working just for pay and he's going to write what they say, but there's an incentive, an unconscious bias, Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of money. And I I think there are other like processes at play here. Uh, Like unconscious? I think it's unconscious Mm -hmm. bias. I do. And he can, but he can demand a lot of pay. So, okay. Ultimately, his testimony was several hours, but he said that he would have ruled Sarah's manner of death as a drowning, which they both agreed on, both the state and prosecution, but he would have said an undetermined cause because he didn't feel there was enough evidence to determine what the cause was. Which introduces reasonable doubt. Absolutely. But again, this is one expert for the other. So how do we know what the jury's thinking? Which expert do they value? I was very curious at the end of this what Ryan thought. Like, how did he think um, Warner Spitz came across? How, how did he feel this testimony went? And I just thought, like, his credibility was, you know, tenfold compared to the to the state's doctors. I mean, Dr. Updegro, I believe Dr. Updegrove and Dr. Lee, neither of them were board certified. And so my attorneys, you know, all our doctors were board certified. And I think they had an emergency room doctor that testified that was board certified. So... There was a lot of stink made about the board certification and what it was for and why doctors get board certified. Well, they don't want to talk about it when Dr. Updegrove and Dr. Lee were testifying, but as soon as their other doctor, they were gloating about him being board certified. So then obviously with all of our doctors being board certified, along with the fact, the book, which they kept saying that um, it was Dr. Spitz's book on pathology, basically said it was like the Bible for pathology. And... Charlie used his book a lot, especially when it came to drownings with his testimony. And I thought it was funny that the prosecutors tried to use the book he wrote against him in cross-examination. He was way more credible than the state's doctor. I asked Dr. Hamill, what's the significance of being board certified? Because as a layperson, I didn't really understand. So she explains. Board certification is a way that the forensic pathology community polices itself to make sure that their trainees are qualified to practice on their own. In order to become a board-certified forensic pathologist, you must have a medical degree, finish residency in pathology, finish a year of forensic pathology training, have a valid medical license, 
and pass two rounds of board exams. The first is anatomic pathology, and the second is forensic pathology. The anatomic pathology is notoriously difficult. So Dr. Updegrove gives a very odd answer to the question. He says, and I quote, well, basically, I took the American Board of Pathology exam. Of course, I passed it the first time I took it. But because I don't have the desire to engage in hospital pathology, I just, to me, the job wasn't contingent on it. It just wasn't important to me to study for a test to learn how to do something that I don't do in my everyday practice. Unfortunately, the board doesn't issue a certificate strictly for people like myself who just do forensic pathology, end quote. First of all, the board does issue a forensic pathology certificate, I would know, because I have one, and they have done so since 1959. So I'm not clear on what he's trying to say there if he says he passed the test but still isn't board certified. The defense attorney did not chase down that line of questioning, so I can't answer that for you. Now, I will insert the caveat that many of my colleagues are not board certified in forensic pathologists, yet they are excellent pathologists, and there are a variety of reasons for that. Dr. Updegrove's explanation of why he is not board certified doesn't make very much sense to me, but that doesn't mean that he is not qualified to practice forensic pathology. So I understand what she's saying there about the board certification, but I do think it was an odd explanation for why he wasn't. And I think her point was just that the defense could have really followed this up and and dug a little bit deeper on this. Regardless, this is pretty significant information from our pathologist. So Ryan thought that Spitz was this, you know, he's top of the line. He's great. But I asked Janice, because she sat in the courtroom, and I wanted to know, what did she think? Well, interestingly, my perception of Werner Spitz versus the jurors, very different. As a person who has covered a lot of criminal cases, I am accustomed to hearing ex expert witnesses. And I thought that he was very credible. He was a little difficult to understand because he had a thick German accent. He's originally from Germany. And I think that the jurors, it didn't sit well with them that this high-powered, famous coroner-type guy, forensic pathologist guy, was sitting there making statements that were contradictory to our county coroner. I think there was a fierce loyalty toward our county coroner. People want to believe that your local officials are saying and doing all the right things. And I just feel like based on my discussions with the jurors and their general demeanor when he testified that they didn't think they weren't impressed. They were not impressed with him. I think that's a super interesting point because we don't think about it. But yeah, this is localized, right? And I think it's also worth noting that jurors are influenced differently by different experts based on how much charisma they have, how much they can relate to them. Absolutely. And if someone has an accent, you can't understand them. That might have been off-putting to some people. Maybe they didn't understand everything. Maybe he didn't put things in layman terms enough for them. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this before where experts who are renowned just don't have a way of connecting. I remember also we saw it in Direct Appeal 1 where there was an expert who connected so well with the jury. It was um, on the plastics. Mm -hmm. They just really liked him. Yeah. And so that can be... An important factor as well. All right. So you would say this is their star witness. This was their star mm -hmm. witness. And both Ryan's attorney and he felt that he was the best witness. But again, as a layperson, Janice went, eh, I don't know. 
he wasn't he wasn't that likable. So it's not necessarily about the testimony, but it could be about the tone and how people interpret it. After Werner Spitz, the defense called people who knew the couple, who knew Ryan and Sarah. Many were friends of Sarah. They all said very nice things about Ryan. The only person who had something negative to say about Ryan was Sarah's mother. Remember, we talked about it, and she got up on the stand and said that they sometimes argued and whatnot. But other than Mm -hmm. that, no, everyone said that they had a great relationship. People also spoke about Sarah's condition, like the fact that she often had headaches and excessive sleepiness. There was a friend who testified that Sarah could fall asleep in the tub. There was another friend, Amy Karabayek, and that was the friend that Sarah had spoken to the night of her death. She said that Sarah on the phone that night complained of a headache and neck pain, and that was about 7 p.m. Sarah's mom at the time said that she also spoke to her, but she sounded fine. But She probably didn't want to worry her mom. Exactly. Like something we wouldn't want to do. We now have Amy at this point. We have Sarah's friend who spoke to her, Ryan, and her employer all saying that Sarah was not feeling well that day. So that's important. Sarah's close friend, Dana Kist, also had her own observations about Sarah's health. She was always sleepy. She was always tired. She was always, I mean, headaches ever occasionally. She would even sleep sometimes on her lunch break, like go out to the car and say, okay, come get me if I haven't come back in in X amount of time, whatever it might be, which is kind of odd for a young person. Not that people don't get random headaches, but I feel like it was a little more frequent than the rest of us would. She would always fall asleep at random things. Um, like we didn't watch a lot of movies or go to a lot of movies because what would be the point when Sarah was going to fall asleep? It was just a joke, you know, I mean, because that's kind of how she was. She would fall asleep randomly. Many people reported that she could fall asleep in places at odd times, like when a big family event with 40 people in a room at dinner or at a football game. I mean, we even have video of Sarah passed out on Christmas morning, you know, on a chair. And we have video as well of Sarah at a baby shower, and someone had given her the name tag Sleeper. So it was a bit of an inside joke. And Ryan said the same thing. Ryan's like, well, I was always riding her about being so tired, and now I feel kind of guilty. And I think Dana does as well. I would bet a lot of listeners have the same question I have. This begs the question, well, did they pull medical records? Is there any medical explanation? They couldn't find any documented history of really anything in her history. She was a very healthy woman, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a condition. It just means that it wasn't detected. Yeah. And some people go to the doctor for every little thing. Some people never go. Like you, Amy. I go to the doctor for every little thing. And yep, I go for nothing. Yeah. So it's possible if, if I, if I had these headaches, there would be documentation that I've visited a neurologist, a doctor, done everything. For you, you probably would just be like, oh, it's a headache. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I would do nothing. I choose to ignore these kind of things. But no, Sarah didn't have a history of, there really wasn't any medical history here to indicate or to explain why she had these headaches or sleepiness. Back to the defense, they called out about a half dozen more witnesses, Ryan's coworkers, friends, and his mother. So the defense ended with Ryan's mother, Jill. Jill was asked about some unknown female DNA under Sarah's fingernails, which doesn't make sense. And why would she know why that was there? I really want to spend almost no time on this, but there were some rumors that Sarah and Ryan might have had another woman over in the home. Nothing came from that totally unsubstantiated and I think completely irrelevant. And considering Sarah just had her nails done, 
and they couldn't trace the DNA to anyone in Sarah's life. So she just had her nails done. So that means she had a fresh manicure? Exactly. So what did that manicure look like? Do you know? Well, the manicure was perfect. It was perfect. But also, there's a million reasons why she'd have DNA under yeah. her nails. If you just got your nails done when they hold your hand, you know. Or she um, was at work that day, right? Also At work that day. I mean, this to me is completely irrelevant, especially since there was never an implication before that that there was anyone else in the home. So moving on to day seven of the trial, the defense called Monica Preppard, who was the church-assigned premarital counselor for Ryan and Sarah. This witness was called to address something that the prosecution brought up, and this was the envelopes found in the Widmer's bedroom with the words written on it, in case of a marriage emergency. The prosecution thought it was going to show that perhaps the relationship between Sarah and Ryan was rocky. But in fact, when she testified, she simply told them that she gave these envelopes to all couples she counseled. So she dispelled this notion that there was any problems and that this was really just a standard thing. So I don't think that it had the impact that the prosecution hoped it would. In some religions, it's customary to go to marriage counseling before you get married. That doesn't mean that they were having issues, correct? It's not only a religious commonality, but some couples just go because they want to actually figure out if this is right, if they're on the same page, if a lot of things. So there's there's definitely nothing uncommon about this. And I think the defense was able to dispel the notion pretty quickly that there was any marital issues and this was just Well, because there, were, there was no other evidence that suggested they were having any marital issues. No, there was none. Oh, although the prosecution would try to show it later on, but we'll, we'll hold that one. Okay. After uh, the marriage counselor was called, the defense called another medical expert, and this was Dr. David Smile. He was board certified. He was an emergency doctor, so the ER doctor. He testified that all the injuries found on Sarah could be attributed to medical intervention. He also spoke about sudden death syndrome. This is sudden cardiac arrest that isn't always explicable. And while it's rare, it definitely happens. We hear about SIDS, right? And, and that's a common, or it's not common, but it's an acceptable explanation for a child death. But does this apply to adults as well? The issue with any sudden death syndrome, such as, you know, SIDS, which is sudden death in newborns or sudden explained death syndrome in adults, the issue is that death itself is often the first and only clinical indicator of an underlying disease in an apparently healthy, asymptomatic person. So this is the problem. Because it is often misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all, it's really hard to even know how many people have it. Right. So it's, there's really no indication. It's actually a diagnosis of exclusion. It's only a cause of death when all other causes have been excluded. So it's basically when we don't know what happened, we attribute it to SIDS or the yeah. same in adults, yeah. correct? If no cause of death can be identified. There's a death scene investigation, an autopsy, a review of the clinical history. There's usually no way to even tell between suffocation and SIDS. But why is it that we find it, it's not acceptable, but it's more acceptable SIDS for children. You hear that and that's an explanation, but why can that not be acceptable then for an adult? I think it's because... When an adult dies, unexpectedly, we're quick to say they died of natural causes, especially in older adults. Oh, well, for older adults, for sure. But yeah, but even, I don't know if you know this, but sudden death syndrome is actually the most common in young and middle-aged adults. Really? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't know that. Okay. So it's a possibility here then that, but we, I guess people don't like it, right? It's rare. We don't like the rare. We don't, we need an explanation. I think it's an explanation that scares people mm -hmm. yeah. because it, she was otherwise healthy. Right. She was young. If this could happen to her, this could happen to me or my daughter or my loved one. 
I, I agree, actually. I think that's correct. All right. So the, the final defense witness was Michael Gregory Balco. And he was a board-certified forensic pathologist as well, certified in anatomical pathology and neuropathology. So he specializes in the brain and the nervous system. His testimony was different than uh, Dr. Updegrove. And he said that the manner of Sarah's death was undetermined and undeterminable. So he's siding with Spitz. I mean, not, not a total surprise. He's a defense witness. On cross-examination, the prosecution asked about the dryness of the body, and Balco admitted to doing his own experiment and shocked the prosecution when said he was dry in just seven minutes. And I believe there was, what, about six and a half minutes in between uh, the 911 call and when the first responders arrived? Correct. Now, I don't, I mean, I think it was a shocker, yeah, but again, we've we've talked about all the factors that can explain you might dry in five minutes, I might dry in 10, There, we don't know she anything. She was on carpet for some of it, carpet could have absorbed some of the water. Ryan had grabbed her, we don't know the temperature, we don't know anything about that. So it, while it was somewhat of a shock, it's also not that shocking. Regardless, I don't think that probably weighed a lot with the jury. Well, there's like this back and forth between the experts in pathology, the medical doctors and testimony. All of the testimony is the backbone of this case, Amy, right? Was Sarah's death a homicide, an accident or known? And you have experts just battling out there. I mean, that's the problem. One is paid by the prosecution. One is paid by the defense. There's the unconscious bias or there's legitimate findings, but still how are we supposed to know who to trust? I think usually the jury is going to look for certifications. Who seems the smartest? Who seems the most clear when they explain their findings? I agree. But for our purposes here, and because we're trying our best to be objective, we went to our third-party pathologist, Dr. Hamill. We asked her to examine this case and then give us her conclusions. But before we hear these conclusions, first let's understand what Dr. Hamill did to review this case. So the most important thing I did in this case for review is I read both the uh, both autopsy reports. I also read the EMS reports, trying to figure out what exactly the medical intervention was that was done. And I also read the entire transcript of the first trial to try and figure out what arguments the prosecution and the defense were actually putting forth in this case. I also reviewed a limited selection of autopsy photographs, and that was about it. So Marianne Hamill did what a lot of experts do when they come in afterwards, um, when they can't conduct an actual autopsy. In this case, Dr. Uptegrove conducted an autopsy, and Charles Rickers also, remember, immediately said, we need a second autopsy. So he got Werner Spitz. So there's two autopsies that were done. But after that, the experts that come in really have to review the records. So what Marianne did was review all the records. So we were able to get her pretty much everything. In a case of what's presumed to be potential manual strangulation, it's very standard to do what's called a layered neck dissection. So in the front of your neck, you have multiple layers of muscles that let you turn your head in any direction, up, down, left, right, any way you want to go. The point of a layered neck dissection is that you can have a lot more injury subcutaneously than you can see on the surface. So what you do is you carefully dissect out each of those strap muscles of the anterior neck sternocleidomastoids, omohyoids, sternohyoids, sternothyroids, and pull them up one by one and photograph them so that you can have a completely clear view in the neck of what's damaged and what's not. 
I don't see direct evidence in the autopsy, either autopsy report that that was done, although in some of the trial testimony it's alluded to. So I'm not entirely clear if that was done or not. I would have done that. Now, the other thing I'd like to point out here is there's a couple of things you can count on when you're reviewing somebody else's case, especially after the fact. Number one is you probably don't have all the information that they had at the time. And the other thing I'd like to note is that it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback somebody else's case. It's very easy for me to sit here and be like, ah, I totally have done that. Uh, You can pick out anybody's autopsy report and say, you know what? I'd have totally done that differently. This is why I don't watch crime shows, because I spend the entire time going, "Mm, I wouldn't have done that. It's a very different thing when you are in charge in the morgue and you have to make decisions about what's to be done. So please keep that in mind when you're evaluating these autopsy reports. You know, I agree with that caveat, and I certainly respect the reverence that she has towards her peers. Reading a report is not the same as a firsthand autopsy. However, it's the best that can be done at this point. So we asked Dr. Hamill, based on all of this, what would be her conclusion? So in this case, I agree with both Dr. Updegrove and Dr. Spitz that she drowned. I think there's good evidence for that. The question is, why was she unable to get herself up from under the level of the waterline? At no point in the trial testimony did I find that the prosecution made a compelling argument as to how exactly this happened. They seem to be very fixated on the bruising in her neck, which suggests manual strangulation, yet the argument they're putting forth is that she drowned. So I can't quite get a handle on whether they're saying that her husband held her down under the water while she was face up, while she was face down. One of the prosecution's forensic pathologists alleges that she was drowned in a sink or a toilet, which I don't find that to be a compelling argument. I also don't understand how one drowns a grown woman who is otherwise unimpaired without any defensive wounds, without her attempting to scratch her perpetrator. Um, I find that very unlikely. So not everything hangs together very well from the prosecution standpoint. On the other hand, she does have quite a bit of bruising in her neck, not all of which can be explained away. At one point in the trial testimony, one of the forensic pathologists for the prosecution alleges that the bruising in her head was enough to render her unconscious. I completely disagree with that. Those are minor bruising of her scalp. Knocking somebody out takes a pretty good blow, and I don't think that's good evidence of that having happened. Now, given that, remember that cause of death is a fact. Manner of death is always an opinion. If this were my case, I probably would have called the manner undetermined because I can't entirely separate out artifacts of resuscitation from actual injuries. And also, I don't have a very good story about how this supposedly happened. I have to say, I think she has a compelling argument there. I I mean, yeah, at the very least, there's reasonable doubt. And when there's reasonable doubt, it's undetermined. It should be undetermined. But she did say that she was concerned about some of the bruising on the neck. When it comes to the neck injury, she's got essentially two neck injuries. One is a large bruise on the left side of her neck that is adjacent to where they put a line in her external jugular vein. The other one is about an inch-sized contusion on the right side of her neck, which no one has a particularly good explanation for. And there's also some small, minor subcutaneous bruising on the back of her neck. She doesn't have a broken hyoid bone. She doesn't have fractures of the cartilage in her neck, the cricoid and thyroid cartilages. 
And what they're alleging in the trial transcript is that someone put their right hand across her neck and held her down. But what I don't understand is, if that's true, why doesn't she have huge bruises on the back of her head from her head being banged against the porcelain of the bathtub? I also don't understand why none of her fingernails are broken or why there were no scratches on the alleged perpetrator. She's a competent adult woman who is has no medical problems that would prevent her from fighting back, nor is she impaired by drugs or alcohol, according to the toxicology report. So she isn't convinced that these bruises are indicative of a crime, but she has some reservations and concerns. And she definitely discusses things that she doesn't quite have an explanation for. I don't love the contusion on the on the right side of her neck. I don't have an explanation for that. I do have one for the big contusion on the left side of her neck, which is the line they put in her external jugular. I don't have a good reason why, if she slipped under the water, she didn't wake up. Everyone seems to agree that Sarah drowned, but no one can say for sure what happened in that bathroom. But could Ryan provide any clues? Well, Ryan would not testify, a move that many believed indicated guilt. But this is quite the norm in murder trials. In fact, most defense attorneys do not want their clients to take the stand. The court also instructs the jury that the defendant has a constitutional right not to testify and that the defendant should be presumed innocent regardless of whether or not they choose to testify, right? So I'd say, I don't know if you agree, Megan, but I'd say as a general rule, criminal defense lawyers do not allow defendants to testify unless it is absolutely necessary. Absolutely. And I would say there had to be a very good reason beyond the defendant's innocence. We're not talking about innocence or guilt here. We're talking about the fact that you're risking, you're taking a risk, the risk that something could go wrong during the defendant's testimony. And I think if you weigh the pros and the cons, little can be gained from having the defendant testify, but a lot can be lost. Uh, I think it's just the fact that the trial could be very stressful and mm-hmm. the littlest discrepancy in a defendant's story or in the way they come off in their affect could be judged against them. That's exactly right. So any discrepancy, it damages credibility, right? If there's any perceived, even small white lie or mm-hmm. it damages credibility. Also, some people don't do well. So I don't know if you remember Darlie Rudier. Yes. She did not do well. She got argumentative and rightfully so because she was saying she was wrongfully accused and whatnot. But that was not perceived. That was not taken well by the jury. Well, then also some people are just nervous because there's so much at stake, whether guilty or innocent, that they might display poor body language, a poor demeanor. Uh, Maybe they respond poorly to questions. Again, we act different when we're nervous and under a lot of pressure. And I guess when we talked to Rickers, Ryan's attorney, he said that like Ryan's affect, he just didn't think he would come off well. I don't think he would have either, to be honest. I don't think it it was necessarily the wrong call, um, although Ryan might disagree at this point. Regardless, after the defense rested their case without Ryan testifying, the jurors were dismissed. um, And this was mid-afternoon. And they came back the next day for closing arguments, which happened on April 1st, 2009. And this was the summary of each side's case. And this is where they make their basically their crucial points, their last plea. Here's why you should find for me. The prosecution featured the bathtub and the theory that Sarah was somehow forcibly drowned while Ryan's attorney highlighted the fact that nobody could say how Sarah really died and there was no sign of any struggle and that, frankly, they thought Ryan acted like a worried husband and and not a, a guilty murderer. 
And on day eight, after closing arguments, the trial was finished and the jurors were sent out to begin their deliberations. So how was Ryan feeling at this point? I felt I felt about as competent, competent as I could. I mean, I knew, again, just because of Charlie, and I think he did a good job, like, kind of not a good job of repairing me, but just, just that he, he never let me feel too confident. Um, so, I mean, I felt good. I felt like everything was going to go in my favor, but I also knew that there was a likelihood that it might not. You don't know which way this is going to go, even if you're feeling good. So there's Ryan's feelings about it, but I also was curious, we were curious, how did his lawyer feel? How did Charlie Rickers feel after this? I thought their case was very weak. I thought I'd done plenty of damage to their experts, and they didn't have a motive. They did not have a motive. I really thought, and you know, trial lawyers, unfortunately, are legends in their own mind, and I've got to say that Maybe uh, I'm, I'm part of that. I don't know. Um, but I really thought that uh, we had it in the bag. I love when he says trial lawyers are legends in their own mind. <laughs> <laughs> so Ryan and Charlie both felt like they had it in the bag. Like things were looking very good for them. But 11 hours later, there was still no verdict. And some say, we've talked about this before, that longer deliberations favor the defendant while others say it does not. But the truth is that every every trial is different and deliberations, sometimes there's more evidence and more to work through. I think it's very mixed. I understand why some people give the assessment that a jury, if they're gonna find a defendant not guilty, they're quick to do so because if the prosecution has a very weak case, sometimes there's no, de- no deliberations at all. Do you remember Casey Anthony? Mm-hmm. The jurors took about 10 hours and they found her not guilty. Right. But then in O.J. Simpson, they only took less than four hours, and that was not guilty. Right. But then you have Derek Chauvin, where they took 10 hours, and he was guilty. So it really could go either way. Yeah. There's always speculation. I've always believed that quick deliberations mean guilt. But honestly, through my career and through all these cases, I've seen— That's funny, because I feel the opposite. I think a quick verdict usually favors the defendant. Yeah. Well, that's why it just you, shows there's no yeah. there's no science no. to this. Mm-hmm. There's no rhyme or reason. And let me point out also that 11 hours uh, people go like 11 hours, but that's not long when you're deciding someone's life in prison. You know what I mean? Like uh, people go like, oh, it was a it was a long deliberation. No, 11 hours is not that long. No, as we know, you can talk about one charge for hours. Right. One or one piece of evidence. Yep. You know, they could talk about the 911 call for 10 hours and yep. people are going to disagree. So mm-hmm. moving through this case, I don't think that's such a long time. But let's also talk to someone else. Journalist Janice Hissel shares with us what the mood was like that day in the courtroom. Everyone was teetering on the edge of their seats, including me. I felt like that it was going to be a close call because... The, the public and then the, the comments that were being made in the public and just my own perceptions were that it seemed kind of almost 50-50. But then technically, if you know about what reasonable doubt is, 50-50 should be an acquittal. But I also knew there was a lot of emotion tied to this case. We have a dead 24-year-old, beautiful young woman And it's sad and it's tragic. And her mother was in tears on the witness stand talking about missing her best friend. And that's heart-wrenching. You would have to be an ogre to not be moved by that. 
and to not feel sympathy for that. And jurors are told to not really let sympathy enter into it. But I think they they pretty much do, even if they don't realize it. It's subconscious maybe because jurors are human beings too. And jurors feel for the people who have lost a loved one. I And I don't, in a lot of ways, I don't fault them for that. But it's been really sad for me to see cases decided more on emotion than on evidence. And there have been a lot of cases nationwide, I think, where that has actually been the case. Do you know what the term is when uh, juries decide on emotion rather than law? Jury nullification? Exactly. And that does happen. Jury nullification is when they disregard the law because they prioritize an emotion or some other fact above the law. And that certainly happens in a number of cases. Yep. And I think it's both understandable, as Janice says, it's understandable, but it's also not what's supposed to happen. But happens all the time. It does happen all mm-hmm. the time. Okay, so... There was this waiting, and Janice is talking about the emotion, but they wouldn't have to wait much longer to find out because the next day, there was news from the jury. Next time on Direct Appeal, the jury returns a verdict, while in the aftermath, the prosecution airs some dirty laundry, and a bombshell revelation threatens to disrupt everything. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.